0: This morning we're going to be looking um, in Acts chapter 2, verse starting in verse 14, we're going to be looking at Peter's first sermon. I'm pretty sure that this is the best first sermon ever preached. Um, most of us would like to forget our first attempt at preaching, I would think. Uh, I think I preached my first sermon in 1988 at uh, youth-led service at Coeur Bible Church. And I'm pretty sure I would be afraid to hear it today. I don't think I'd want to listen to it at all. And I'm pretty sure we still have a cassette tape because remember they had the, the cassette tape ministry somewhere in our prized possessions. I think that exists, and I hope it never resurfaces. Public speaking is is something that uh, if you've never done it, it's 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 difficult. Um, according to statistics, public speaking is the greatest fear that people have. Guess what number two is? Death. Yeah. It just does, it's like, doesn't make sense, but that's, that's what the stats tell us. So as comedian Jerry Seinfeld once pointed out, that means that for the average person, if you have to go to a funeral, you're better off in the casket than doing the eulogy. <laughs> it's kind of a weird thought, but that's what the stats say. Um, preaching to a crowd is not an easy thing to do. Peter would have been completely out of his depth at this point. He was a fisherman, not a public speaker. He didn't have really any credibility or pedigree. It wasn't like people would come to town to hear Peter at this point. They didn't even know who he was. He didn't spend 20 hours that week preparing for a sermon. This was completely impromptu. He got up and just started in, which makes it even more amazing. As we will see at the end of this sermon, 3,000 people received Christ as their Lord and Savior. (laughs) That's, That's amazing. I mean, how is that possible? This is Peter, right? We know Peter. How is this possible? What's gotten into Peter? That's the question. Well, as we learned last week, it's possible because the Holy Spirit has gotten into Peter. The Spirit had touched down on this group in this large room. And just as Jesus told them what happened in Acts 1.8, He said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. And both of these things are happening right now. In the life of Peter and these people, Jesus made good on his promise. Peter became extremely effective that day because of the presence of the Holy Spirit and because of the preaching of god 's Word. When those two things are combined, lives can be radically changed, and that gives me great comfort because to get up here and to do this is terrifying and, and it 's difficult and, and i 'm not saying that so you 'll feel bad, but I just want you know the, the Bible says not many of you should become teachers, and I agree with that. <laughs> Because, yeah, this is slightly terrifying. You feel completely inadequate in yourself to do this. If you've ever done it, you know exactly what I mean. And yet, if we're relying on the power of the Holy Spirit, teaching the Bible and preaching the gospel accurately, we can count on the fact that lives will be changed. And I love that. It's really not up to me and my skill. Thank God. It's up to the power of him. Now, last week we we heard about the promised Holy Spirit falling on this room full of disciples. Uh, There was a sound like a mighty rushing wind that filled the room. And they all started speaking in tongues about the mighty works of God, which apparently caused a ruckus among those who were filling Jerusalem for the Feast of Weeks, also known as the Feast of Harvest, also known as the Feast of Pentecost. You can take your pick. They're they're synonymous with each other. Uh, Pentecost, by the way, just means 50th. So, this was 50 days after Passover, this festival occurs. That's the Feast of Pentecost. We're told that the people arriving from various places heard them speaking in their own language, which would have been really weird. They normally, when they come into town, you know, there are all these different people from all these different countries come in, and, and you can imagine what that would sound like. And they walk into town this time and they hear everybody speaking in their own language. So so it was very strange. There's a dozen different languages represented, and you can imagine what it would have normally sounded like. And, And at this time, they can hear these Galileans, and they can understand everything that they're saying perfectly. Verse 11 says, We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. And in verse 12, they're going to ask the question that we're going to hopefully answer this morning. It says in verse 12, And they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? So this is one of these things when, yeah, this isn't normal. You know, usually when we come into town, this isn't happening. What does this mean? This is a very significant event. It's kind of the opposite of what took place at the Tower of Babel. If you remember at the Tower of Babel, all the, the, the people got together who spoke the same language and decided we're going to build a tower and we're going to show God who's boss. And God kind of said, oh, that's cute. And, <laughs> and, and just kind of went, there you go. Try it now. And so the guys over here talking like, well, maybe we should put a steel beam across that. And the other guy looks over at him, he's like, No comprende. You know, it's like, you know, what's going on with that guy? He's like, I can't do French, but you know, le Bleu, invaders. You know, all of a sudden, you know, the whole, the whole, the whole construction plan is is off. You know, they just go home. They can't they can't finish the job. And this is kind of an undoing of that all of a sudden, where you see the very opposite thing happen, where all these people who normally couldn't understand each other at all can hear the gospel spoken in their own language. It's, it's really remarkable. So just as it is today, what we see happening here is some people heard this and they were amazed and perplexed and wanted to know more. And other people heard it and they mocked. They actually accused the disciples of day drinking, which is kind of funny. This is like nine in the morning and they're going, these guys are drunk. Now, I don't know what that means because if... If you came in and you heard them speaking in in your language, you wouldn't assume, well, they're drunk. So it sounds to me like some people were able to hear it and some people weren't. And that's true of the gospel today. I don't know what that is, but you can preach the gospel to five people and one will hear it and accept it and four will reject it and mock. And so it's not a whole lot different than what we see today. So in verse 14, what we see is Peter stepping up to let them know what this does mean. He's going to answer that question, what it means. And he's going to tell them what they need to do about it as well. This is a massive chunk of scripture that I've picked to do today. Uh, David and Terry both said it would be great if it could all be done at once, but that would be stupid. So here we go. Acts 2, starting in verse 14, but Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, declares God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. In those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. It says that God in the book of Joel, written like 800 years prior to this, that God, there was going to come a day where God poured out his spirit on all flesh. Now, this is one of those times in the Bible where all doesn't mean all. And that sounds funny, but it, it, he didn't pour it out on everybody there. It was a group of 120 people in this room who the Holy Spirit was poured out upon. So when he says all here, he doesn't mean every individual that was in Jerusalem at that point in time. It's, it's talking about a specific group. And he mentions who these people are. It wasn't the usual suspects. It wasn't the kings or the prophets that that enjoyed God's Spirit falling on them. It was, Um. Here, where did it go? Oh, here it is. It was sons and daughters. It was young men and old men. It was female servants and male servants. So he didn't discriminate. It just fell on all of them is the point. And it resulted in them prophesying. Now this is again is the Old Testament idea of a prophet would be that they were like an oracle of God. They would speak forth the truth of God. And and this is what's happening right now. At that time, the prophets would receive messages from God in different ways, sometimes through dreams, sometimes through visions, and then they would speak forth those things to God's people. These prophets were intimately connected with God and entrusted to speak his word to those around them. And Peter is saying, this is what you're witnessing here today. Same, the same thing is happening where these people are, 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 have had this intimate connection with God and now they're speaking forth truth in a miraculous way. He's not saying that all the people have been given the gift of prophecy. It's not like from this point forward, all these guys are prophets. It's saying that because of the Holy spirit indwelling in them, they're able to boldly and powerfully proclaim truth. It's funny because Moses actually hoped for this very thing back in, in numbers 11. I know you guys like to spend a lot of time reading numbers, but this is, this is one of the good things in numbers right here where, where Moses is actually, he, he's got these 70 elders gathered and, um, it says in verse 25 of Numbers 11, the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to them and took some of the spirit that was on him and put it in the 70 elders. And as soon as the spirit rested on them, they prophesied, but they did not continue doing so. But there were two guys that, that kept prophesying. Uh, their, their names were, uh, it's kind of funny, they rhyme almost, Eldad and Medad. It's like Donald and Connell. Um, <laughs> The Spirit rested on them, and they kept prophesying. And so one of the young men came to Moses and said, Hey, these guys, are they're just keeping it up. They're, they're keep, they keep going here. Do you want to go stop them? And Joshua even said, Moses, you got to go stop them. What are they doing? And Moses' response is awesome. He says, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his Spirit on them. So Moses is saying, It would be great if everybody could do this. Well, here we see in, in, in Peter's time this very thing happening. God's people have just had this wonderful interaction with God, and they're talking about it. Right, That's what the church is supposed to continue to do today. As we have this interaction with God, as we get his word into our lives, as his Holy Spirit impacts us, we're supposed to go talk about the mighty works of God to those around us. Because of what happened at Pentecost, every believer possesses the ability to do this, to participate in the Great Commission. Tell people the mighty works that Jesus accomplished, who he is and what he's done. That's what we're to be all about. We know God intimately, and so we can invite others to do the same. So even what we're seeing Peter do on this day is a fulfillment of Joel's prophecy. What he's doing as he stands before them right now is actually this very thing taking place. Now it's important to note that Peter establishes the basis of what is taking place here through Scripture. He's not just coming up and giving Peter's opinion of what took place that day. He actually goes to the to the God's Word as, as the authority and says this is what's happening. It's also important to point out that Peter didn't have a Bible in his hand or a scroll, you know, it wasn't like he rolled out a scroll and started just quoting scripture or, you know, reading it. He he had it hidden in his heart. This stuff just started spilling out of him. He wasn't prepared for this. And I love this because that tells me that Peter had studied God's word. It was hidden in his heart to where for such a time as this, the Holy Spirit would bring it out. And and he's, I mean, he's, he's, you know, rattling off some chunks of scripture here. This is good. And I don't know if you've ever been in one of these times where you start talking to somebody about the Lord and all of a sudden god 's word just starts kind of spilling out in this amazing way, and you're like, wow, that's pretty cool you know i didn't I didn't remember I had that in there, but if you hide god 's word in your heart, it'll come up when you need it and so I would encourage you guys meditate on god 's word, study it, memorize it, learn it, God will use it for such a time like this. So Peter continues on in this passage uh, quoting the book of Joel, but in verse nineteen he begins to talk about some events that are that are um, I believe still future and it's interesting. Um, you'll notice in verse 17, when he starts that section out, he says, "And in the last days it shall be." And then he talks about what's happening right there that day, and then he talks about something that I believe hasn't happened yet. Biblically, the last days cover the time from Jesus's ascension to his second coming. So Peter, they were in the last days. Right now, we are in the last days, and that might sound weird because that's a long period of time. But that's kind of that's the explanation for that. So in verse 19, he goes on to quote Joel by saying, not only am I going to pour my spirit out on all, on all these people here and they will prophesy, but I will show wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. For those hearing these words that day, it should have created a sense of urgency. He's talking about what's going on here, and he's saying the day of the Lord is coming. We're in the last days, and the Lord is going to return. Are you ready to meet the Lord? That's kind of what 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 they would have been hearing and sensing and feeling. And so, like I said, urgency should have come. If you're terrified about the idea of Jesus returning, look at verse 21. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Because for the believer, that day is going to be great and magnificent. But for the unbeliever, it's going to be terrifying and dreadful. But it doesn't have to be. You can call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. Of course, the surety of your salvation depends fully on what name you're calling on. You see, the Bible only gives one name that can save, the name of Jesus. And that's exactly where Peter goes next. These people didn't know who to call upon. Peter's going to make that very clear to them right now. Now, this is another lengthy section I'm going to read from 22 to 36. So hang in there and and track with me if you can. Peter says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth. I'm going to stop there for a quick second because I wanted to point out that he didn't start there. right? When they said, what does this mean? He didn't say, well, Jesus of Nazareth. He didn't start with Jesus. He started with the Old Testament prophecy of Joel to kind of hook them. They were going to listen to that. If he would have started with Jesus, they may not have continued. So now he gets to the to the meat of it. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. That was a quote from Psalm 16. And then Peter says, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God swore, had sworn an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. That he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted to the right hand of God and having received Peter starts out by establishing that Jesus is, in fact, the Lord they must call upon for salvation. He wants them not to miss this point. You must call upon the Lord to be saved. Jesus is Lord. He starts out in verse 22 by telling them that God plainly confirmed this before them through all the mighty works and signs and wonders that Jesus did in their presence. And when you think about all the stuff Jesus did, it's like, yeah, duh, you would think, right? Think about all the healings. Think about feeding the 5,000, raising the dead, walking on water, calming storms. You you know, you look at that kind of behavior and think, "That's, that's a little unusual. I wonder who could do that kind of thing, you know? Hmm. God can do that kind of thing. Only God can do that kind of thing. And that's what he's pointing out. Now, the natural question that they would have asked as a Jew would be this. If Jesus was accredited by God, if he was so bona fide before God, why was he rejected? and arrested, and humiliated, and beaten, and crucified. Because to them, that didn't make any sense that Messiah would have to go through something like that. That wouldn't have computed with him. So so if he's, if he's the Lord, if he's Messiah, why did he go through all of that? And verse 23 answers this little conundrum. In verse 23, Peter says, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Okay. I don't know if you if you read that sentence, and, and if you read it right, your mind kind of went, mm, you know, what was that I just read? Is that what, what just happened there? Because it says two things, it seems. It says that God delivered Jesus up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge that he had. And foreknowledge doesn't mean that he was aware of something. It means that he ordained it beforehand. So the Bible says clearly that Jesus was the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world. This was something God determined to have happen. But then he says, you crucified him. So it's like, well, which is it? Right? Was it God? Who was behind Jesus' crucifixion? Was it God or was it men? And the answer is yes. <laughs> right? And It's like, okay, how does that work? I don't know, <laughs> quite frankly, because he's God. That's why it works. He's able to do this. People did exactly what they wanted to do in killing Jesus. And God holds them rightly responsible for that. But at the same time, his perfect will and plan was being accomplished. And again, if I could answer that, you know, I'd, I'd feel great. But I just, I just trust it. I just know that this is who our God is. Throughout the Bible, you'll find these two kind of perplexing but parallel lines that run through the scriptures of God's sovereignty and of man's responsibility, and both things are true. I love a quote by C.S. Lewis. It's one that I, it's one of those kind of matrixy kind of quotes that you think about for a while and maybe never quite get. But he said this, he said, you will certainly carry out God's purpose, however you act. But it makes a difference to you whether you serve like Judas or John. That's just good. <laughs> the Bible tells us that God is not the author of evil and that he tempts no man to sin. But it also and it also teaches the man is responsible for his sin and his choice to do evil. And somehow God is able to accomplish his purposes through all of those things. It's remarkable. God is incredible. His His knowledge, His power, His ability to accomplish His plans and purposes blows my mind. In spite of what we do and in spite of our evil, God's plan carries on. And He does, he does His will. And that's just awesome. Men crucifying Jesus, the most evil thing that's ever happened, accomplished God's plan of man's salvation. That's <laughs> just crazy, isn't it? They killed Him, and in doing so, they provide a Savior for mankind. So the cross was always God's plan for man's salvation. And if there was any doubt that Jesus was God's lamb that would take away the sin of the world, verse 24 should remove it because after saying this was God's plan and you crucified him and killed him, verse 24 tells us that God raised him up. God raised him up, loosening the pangs of death because it was impossible for him to be held by it. I love that. Death was no match for Jesus. That's how we know that he was bona fide. That's why we know he was accredited to God because death didn't keep him down. He got back up. Three days after dying, he stood up. Easily defeated death. So yeah, Jesus was arrested, humiliated, beaten, crucified, and buried. But that wasn't the end of the story, was it? God had a purpose in what he was accomplishing through that. It was the salvation of sinners. And when Jesus came back from the dead, it proved that he was who he said he was. And it proved that he accomplished what he set out to accomplish. So Peter again returns to the scriptures in this section to give authority to what he's telling them. As I mentioned in in verses um, 25 through 35, he quotes two psalms. One is Psalm 16 and one is Psalm 110. And we're not going to break these down. It's really fascinating to go through and study these in depth and look at what's being said here. But the point of his argument is simply this. David wrote prophetically about the th- the things that pointed to and applied to Messiah that would come. So David knew that God had promised that he would have an heir that would sit on the throne forever, right? But David's a man, and his kids are going to be men who are going to die. And David somehow knows, though, somehow, though, one of my heirs is going to sit on a throne eternally. So that means... One of my heirs is going to resurrect from the dead. David figured this out. David understood it somehow. And prophetically, he writes about it. If you've ever read the Messianic Psalms, any of the ones that, that, that exist, you know, David, you're wondering sometimes how he's writing them. It's like, who are you, how are you? what are you thinking when you're writing this? Exactly how does this go? Like, for instance, in verse 27, David's writing, he says, you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your holy one see corruption. Well, David wrote those words and it looks like he's writing them about himself, but he's not because guess what happened to David? He died, and his body saw corruption. Right? He decayed. If you go to the two tombs right now, if you went to David's tomb and Jesus' tomb, guess what you'd find? One decayed body and one empty. And that's the reality of it. Again, in verse 33, he says this. He talks about this, this one that's been exalted to the right hand of God. And it looks like David's, again, just writing about himself. But was David exalted did he ascend and, and sit at the right hand of God? And now is he waiting for God to make his enemies his footstool? No. That's who Christ is. That's, he's speaking again of Christ, and it's very obvious. And I love the way that this section rolls through because there's something glorious about the way that Peter presents the gospel here. I, you know, I'm just picturing Peter, you know, a few weeks back, and I'm picturing him here that day. Here he is standing in this crowd. He's fearless. He's bold. He's unapologetic. He's not afraid to offend, right? He doesn't pull any punches. He's even willing to confront their sin. And that's not something preachers do today. I don't know if you're aware of that cuz we do it here sometimes. But but we don't talk about sin in church anymore. You don't want to offend anybody cuz they might not come back. They might not put money in the offering box if you talk about sin. So now we 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 say mistakes. Oh, did you guys make some mistakes this week? Oops made a mistake, you know? That's the kind of stuff people are talking about now. Like Jesus came just to die for your mistakes. No, that's not that's not it, guys. Look how Peter concludes the section in verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. I mean these guys are they came into town for a festival and they're they're just like they're getting nailed to the wall right now. You crucified him. He puts the blame squarely on the people that were there that day. Many of them just got into town, too. I'm thinking, you're like, me? I mean, I just, I wasn't even here when that happened. It's like my kids used to say all the time. It's like, I didn't even know we had, I wasn't even in the room. I didn't know that. Right. And the people that were in town that day were pointing at the Romans. Well, they were the ones that did it. Now, he already covered that. He said, no, you crucified him by the hands of lawless men. You used them to do your dirty work. So... Peter isn't having any of that. You killed the Lord of glory. You crucified the Son of God. You sent Jesus to the cross. The truth is, it doesn't matter whether they were there or not. We are all culpable and responsible for what happened to Jesus. It was your sin and my sin that put Him on the cross. And that's what He's saying. You know, we sing a song with a lyric that gets me every time, which is probably stupid for me to quote it because it'll get me now. But it says, Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice cry out among the scoffers. Gets me every time, (laughs) because I picture myself there. And you want to think, no, I would have loved Jesus. I would have received Him. No, you would have nailed Him to a cross. You would have scoffed along with the soldiers. And there's something profound that happens when you re- when you finally recognize who Jesus really is and how condemned you actually stand before him i grew up in a in a religion that basically told me i was okay i didn't really didn't really matter you know as long as i didn't do crazy things like murder or like push old ladies down in the street you know i mean stuff like stuff that i wasn't going to do anyway and, and and as long as i didn't do those things i was okay with god he, he and he was okay with me and I remember one night going out with a buddy of mine. You know, I was a cop's son and he was a pastor's son and we used to get into trouble together. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not encouraging that sort of behavior. Just acknowledging that it happened. But we went out one night and we were out on a, a dark road someplace, car parked, music playing, you know, drinking and talking. And again, I'd always thought, I'm fine with God. I believed in a lot of things. I believed in heaven and hell. I believed in who Jesus was and all those things. I just thought that I was on the right side of this whole equation. And that night, my friend wasn't walking with the Lord, but he was talking about the book of Revelation. I remember it very clearly. I don't even remember what he said exactly, but he was just telling me about the book of Revelation, which is a cool book to hear about. And for whatever reason, that night, I knew at the end of that night that I was in the crosshairs of God's wrath. And I'd never realized that before. I never understood that that was really my position. And that night, for whatever reason, whatever he said, whatever God's word did that night, I was terrified. I mean, knees knocking together like I'm in trouble. What do I need to do? What must I do was my question. What do I need to do next? Do you understand how great your debt is? How far your sin has alienated you from a holy God? And the price that Jesus paid to purchase your ransom? You know, the Christians that I admire the most, whose walks I just really think, wow they are serious about their walk with God, there's something different there, are the ones that have actually recognized how sinful they are before a holy God. There's something that happens when you finally get that and understand it that changes everything. When you understand that it should wreck you. And if if it hasn't wrecked you, I don't know if you've gotten it yet. These guys got it. Look at their reaction when they'd realized what they'd done in verse 37. After Peter finishes saying these things to him, you crucified him. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? That's the right response. That question is just as relevant today. When you understand where you stand before God, what shall we do is the right question to ask. And Peter gives them the answer to their question in verse 38. Verse 38. Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Peter tells them they need to repent. Repentance means a change of direction. Alright? A 180, not a 360. People that keep saying three sixty are doing it wrong. It's like I was at my my life did a complete three sixty. It's like, nah, you're still going the same way. So it's a one eighty. Sorry, but I have to take these opportunities to correct these things. <laughs> Next week, we're going to talk about merging onto the highway. It's driving me crazy. <laughs> Sorry. Repentance means a change of direction. It means to turn away from something. So, so to, when he tells these guys to repent, he's telling them to turn away from your sin. Turn away from the life that you've been living. Turn away from the things you've been trusting in and turn to God. That's what repentance is. Fall on your face before God and ask him to forgive you and to cleanse you and to receive you. And you know what? You will. I still am amazed. I mean, I, you know, I cried in front of a group of teenagers a couple weeks ago <laughs> we were at this thing because I, when I think of what God did for me, it still wrecks me every time. I, you know, I quoted this psalm, or this uh, hymn, that, and I, you guys probably didn't know this hymn, but it says, um, Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my sovereign die. Would he divulge that sacred head for such a worm as I? And, and it does. I mean, worm theology isn't popular today, but I'm a worm. I know this. I know what I am. And that God would would receive me and forgive me and embrace me and seat me at his table as a son and as an heir because of Christ is, is, is amazing to me. God will forgive you if you come to Him and call on Him. He will give you the gift of the Holy Spirit. He will enter your life and transform you into a new creation. And it is the greatest thing that's ever happened to me. He also tells them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And some people try to take this to mean that in order to be saved, you have to be baptized. That's not what's being taught here. Um, In fact, in, in the next chapter, in verse 19, Peter says, Repent, therefore, and turn to God that your sins may be blotted out and he doesn't mention baptism at all in that section. Baptism is important. It's an act of obedience. It's a way of drawing a line in the sand, you know what I mean? Just to say, "You know what? This is who I am now. I am a Christian. I belong to Jesus." And when you publicly get baptized, it's a way of pronouncing that to people. And in this time, for a Jew to do that, to actually publicly be baptized, you were drawing a line in the sand. You were alienating yourself from probably your family, from your employer, from society, from culture. So this was a big deal for them to do it. And these guys, uh, you know, we, today we don't, we kind of put it off. I don't know what that is exactly what we do as Christians. A lot of people are like, you know, I'll get around to that someday maybe. These guys did it almost immediately. In fact, this day, after all these people get saved, guess what they did? They got baptized that day. You know, nowadays we'd like, we like, we do, okay, you have to do a six-week class. And I'm not trying to be, you know, mean to churches, but it's like, no. If you've been saved and you haven't been baptized... Get baptized, please do this. We'll, we'll we'll help you. That's our job, right? We'll, we'll find a way to make it work. And then listen to these precious words in verse 39. He says this, for the promise, and this is the promise of forgiveness and the promise of the Holy Spirit, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. If you've called upon the name of the Lord and have trusted him for salvation, that promise is for you. If you haven't, and you, and you know today that God is calling you to himself, answer that call. The time is short. Nobody's guaranteed tomorrow. I would just plead with you to consider that. What, just really consider that the God of the universe who made you is calling you and wants a relationship with you. Receive that. He says in the next verse, save yourself from this crooked generation. And I love that. You know, I'm thinking, boy, if they were living in a crooked generation, you know, what are we living in right now? We're living in a really weird time where I don't even understand what's going on sometimes anymore. I I read news stories and I think, this is, am I on the onion? Am I reading satire right now? Is this real? And it's real. So in verse 40. He says, and with many other words, he bore witness, Peter, he bore witness, continued to exhort them, saying, save yourself from this crooked generation. So those who received his word and were baptized, and they were were added about 3,000 souls that day. So basically, 3,000 souls responded and were saved that day. That's not too bad for a first sermon, right? I think back to my sermon, the first one, and and how many people got saved, and it was probably... Probably none <laughs> I'd be surprised. I don't even know if I preached the gospel sadly, and this is just a snippet by the way, of, of this sermon, but I don't know if you saw that in verse forty. It says, with many other words, he bore witness and continued. so we, we get the highlights of Peter's sermon. There was more I, hopefully we get a chance there's a cassette ministry in heaven, maybe we'll get to listen to it you know <laughs> when we get there but but all of this makes you understand why Jesus told them to wait. Remember how he said, Wait, wait, wait. Wait for it, right? This is why. It's crazy to consider the difference that the Holy Spirit made. Think of Peter not long before this, who he was and what he was like. Afraid, denying Christ, hiding in a room, you know, because he didn't want the authorities to find him And now he's standing in a public forum, right? Pleading with people to receive Jesus Christ as their Lord without any fear. That same Holy Spirit that enabled Peter can enable you also. And I want you to think about that. You know, when when God does something in your life, like what happened to these people, the natural response is to tell people. If you are a recipient of grace, you should want to tell other people about the same grace. That's our desire to see more and more people in this community and in this, in this um, area that we live in to come to know Jesus. We're a room full of broken people who desperately need grace. And this is a community full of broken people who desperately need grace. And Jesus is the answer. He's the name that God gave above all other names. He's the only name that we're to call on. And so if you haven't done that, do it today. If you have, share it with somebody that doesn't know it yet. Father, thank you so much for Peter's sermon. and, And thank you for the difference that we can see in Him, we know that that's You and not Him. It's so clear that when You enter a life, everything changes. When Your Word enters a life, everything changes. When Your Holy Spirit comes upon us, everything changes. We thank You so much that You didn't leave us as we were, but You allowed people like us to have salvation. That You allowed Jesus Christ to be nailed to the cross so that worms could have salvation. Thank you for loving us, Lord. We don't understand. There's so much about you that we don't understand, but we worship you and we receive it by faith. In Christ's name, amen.